I'm Connor O'Shea and this is the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. On this new podcast from England Rugby, we'll be taking you through techniques, ideas and some of our experiences at the elite level of the game, as well as stories from nearly 50 years of coaching experience between us. Welcome to the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. You're not going to enjoy this. This is my first time doing something like this, so I don't know where I'm going. So we'll lead, we'll lead the way. How's everything out in Japan? Uh, not bad, mate. Starting to tighten up a bit. I think uh, the lockdown's probably uh, accelerating. It'll be a chance for me to learn a little bit now today, if that's possible. One of the things, uh, like rather than just going straight into the technical side of things and your current coaching experience, and I know a lot of people have read the book, but how did you know that you wanted to be a coach? When when did that when did that occur in your brain that this is what I want out of my life? Uh, never really, to be honest. Uh, always enjoyed playing, and and you know you're a bit younger than me, but back when I played, the coaching tended to be quite uh, hit and miss, and I never really enjoyed my coach that much, apart from Bob Dwyer, who who I really found to be quite inspirational. And then I was studying PE, so we were learning about, you know, teaching methodology and doing sports physiology and, and, and exercise physiology. So you tended to probably know a little bit more than the coaches. So I ended up dropping down a grade and, ha- and the coach asked me if I wanted to coach. So I did it. And I, it was just like running a PE lesson and that's how I treated it. And then we had some success. I enjoyed it, enjoyed working with the players. And and then I did one year when I finished playing and then my wife said to me, well, you're never home, so make a decision. Um, you know, do you want to stay married or do you want to be a, a coach? And I decided and we're still married after 28 years, so it was probably a pretty good decision. And then when the game went professional, I thought, well, I was, I was uh, doing reasonably well as a teacher and then I thought, if there's an opportunity to do this professionally, I'll, I'll do it because I, you know, what a great opportunity to get paid to do something you love doing anyway. Yeah. And yourself? I, I probably much the same, even though there's a couple of years between us. And it's funny because I played in a back line in London Irish, and it was myself, Brendan Venter, Mark McCall, David Humphreys, all in all in that back line together. And we always talked and looked at the coaching and we learned off a lot a lot of coaches we coached actually at the time that's four of us by dick best uh yeah. you know who you know pretty well so I learned a little bit yeah. off him but we always kind of said well we feel that we could do something we feel like we'd do a better job so put your money where your mouth is because there's so many people who say that they can do things but they actually won't actually put their neck on the block yeah. and, and do it and we kind of bounced off each other to be honest i did i, I found or I find anyway, the whole time. I learned a lot off those group of players that I was with, but then I picked a lot off some of the younger coaches. So I had people like, think of your era, Willie Anderson, uh, who coached me a lot, uh, Jerry Murphy, who coached Ireland, Murray Kidd, a Kiwi who come over, Brian yeah. Ashton, who came over to Ireland for a period. And you just learned so much off that group of people. And maybe they were probably a little bit more on the professional side as opposed to the decade before when you were coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's probably the case. And I think a couple of interesting things there is that firstly you tend to get cluster of coaches. Like out of the same team that I played in came 
Ewan McKenzie and Michael Checker, who both coached Australia. So we had three Australian coaches out of the same team. It was the same thing. Yeah, you'd sit around at the end of the game and, you know, or in my era more particularly, you'd sit around, you'd have a beer and they'd be the coaching conversations. You know, what did we do well? What did we didn't do well? How could we fix it? And there was a lot more of that that informal discussion going on. And and Bob Dwyer used to have this great saying, he used to say, the best coaches are the players. And I think that still rings true now. You know, as a coach out there, your best source of information is always the players. How, how do you then know that the players are preparing? When you say you kind of, what's the phrase people use? The best coach makes themselves redundant, almost, that the players lead it. But how do you know when you reach that stage that their level of preparedness is at the right level? Because there's so much disparity in a team, isn't there? You've got the, the cluster who are really into it. You've got the group that need to be led because, and especially if you take some of the people listening in here, they'll be community coaches, you rock up, you have players who come off, to, uh, off a day's work uh, or their kids who come in from school and more specifically those guys who come in from work and you still, you're still competitive, you still want to win, you still want to be prepared. So like, what's that balance you see in those sort of teams? Uh, well, I think it's always delicate. I don't think there's an actual point because as as you know, and all the coaches out there will know, your team's always dynamic, it's always growing, it's always changing. So there are times where you think that you can give maybe 90% of the responsibility to the players, but one player might get injured or he might have a fight with his wife the night before and he comes in and the next day he's not so, doesn't have that much leadership in him. So you've always got to be monitoring that and, that, and that's the coach's job to keep monitoring how much he has to be assertive and how much he needs to stand back and allow the players to do it. And that's just a constant process. Yeah. And, and that goes, so you, you know this kind of Churchillian address and there's a lot of talk and one of the things we wanted to cover today was how much you lead players. So when you're looking at the pre-match, half-time, uh, you know, the, the, the whole build-up to matches, where is the point that you see the players taking over do you ever intervene when you go, no, this is just not happening? Like, when, when are those points that you go, no, I have to take control here? Uh, well, I think there's two points. There's two obvious points, I think. One, when your team's short of confidence, you've got to work hard to give them confidence, and that's where you need to speak a little bit. You need to be building them up, telling them how potentially good they are, using individuals to build them up. And the other time is the opposite, when they're, they're too full of confidence. And you need to pull them down a little bit. And I think that's when the coach really needs to lead. Then the other, the bits in between are the bits where you, you're just trying to work out what's a nice balance between you and you and the and the, the players, you know. And and it, it changes for each part of the area too. You know, we've got John Mitchell, who's a very experienced head coach, coached the All Blacks, five, four or five super rugby sides. But the leader of our defence is Owen. And Owen's quite a vociferous, quite an aggressive, quite an assertive guy. And they've got a fantastic balance together to coach defence. You know, John's happy for, for Owen to take the lead, but at times John will come in and give a little bit of detail. So it's a really nice balance there. Whereas if you've got a, a more assertive coach, then you need a captain um, who's probably a little bit quieter because what you don't want is a, is too much information for the players. And and the coach's job is to get that right balance of information between the players and the coaches. So what, what's your, 
and I know I kind of know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it. In terms of key points and message that you try and distill, so you look at defence, you look at attack, you look at all the areas of the game that people want. And I suppose as you go up levels and you get more specialist coaches coming in, everyone wants their piece of the action. Everyone wants to, you know, well, I need my time in defence. I need my time in transition. I need my time with attack. How do you balance all the messages in those key areas to distill it to key points? Yeah, I think it's one of the most difficult things of having a coaching team. And there'll be coaches out there who are, are coaches of teams of two and there'll be coaches out there who are coaches of teams of five. And again, any conversation you have with, with any group of players, you'll find the most things they can remember are three things. So your game plan at the start of the week, you've got to find out what are three things that are really important to do well. And that's not the only things you do, but they're the things you really emphasise. And some of those might be the things you want to take away from the opposition and some of them might be the things you want to do to the opposition. And the skill of the head coach is being able to focus on those three things and then make sure all the necessary information fills in behind it. And is your whole, what, what's your holy grail? Because I'll go back to just thinking when you're talking there, 2011, and we had the, the key messages playing in the Challenge Cup final against uh, Stade Francais, and we spent the whole week talking about the French defence, uh, standard French defence. It's soft, it allows you space. Then you go into the match, and within two, three minutes, you see, oh my, they have changed the defensive style. They're just coming off the line, they're getting up into our faces quick, they're disrupting our game. How long does it take you to recognise those changes? That's a very simplistic thing to see, a speed, a line speed, but subtle changes to all your preparation that you've done. And then who feeds that in? How do you get that message across to people in the moment to change? Yeah, I think one of the things, and I think any coach can do this, at the start of the week to get the players mentally engaged, and I think the, the, the term they use now is mental modelling, to get the players to mental model the game uh, is say, right, we've just played Stade Francais in the Challenge Cup final. Uh, we got beaten. How did we get beaten? And get the players to think about that. Then they'll think about, right, well, they could change their defence. And if they change their defence, what will we then do as a team? So the players are already practising that in their head. Um, and that's, that's we did that against, the, against Wales. We said, right, guys. You're the Welsh coaches now. First team meeting we had, you're the Welsh coaches. How are you going to beat England? And they came up with various things, which was generally pretty good. And then, again, you're getting the players to think about solutions straight away. And then the, the head coach's job or the coaching team's job is to is to make a concise summary of that. And mental, I think we call it what-if what scenarios, mental modelling or whatever you want to call it. How many of those will you try and go through? In a before a game, like will you constantly challenge them within sessions? You overload the defense, put more numbers in defense than attack, or yellow card people, or do you know how many of those what ifs do you put them under pressure on within your training week? Because it's it's actually quite stimulating doing it as well. Yeah, no, we'll we'll try to work out what we think the key ones are and emphasize those, and then but our training will then randomize and we'll generally. And again, for that Wales week, we we trained the whole week. But it was good practice for the players to get in that situation because we thought, you know, Wales are the sort of team that always keeps coming. It doesn't matter. And and even at the end of the game, they might force you in the yellow card. So we put the players in that situation. I think that, that helped us to a large 
large regard cope with that last 20 minutes where it got a bit hectic. You just made one of the things that I know some of the under 20s joined you this year uh, within the, the odd session and the impact that can have at any level on young players when they see how the older players prepare for test matches. Because I know the under 20s that were involved in those sessions came back and, yeah. uh, you know, Alan Dickens is coaching the head coach of the 20s saying the difference in those people because they saw this is how Owen prepares, this is how uh, George Ford prepares, Marrow. Uh, think they looked at all these people and they learned so much and I think as coaches we can learn but players it's one of the points you made there about looking at matches analyzing thinking about games and it's not just thinking about your own sport you can learn off any sport in the world yeah no 100 percent. I was having a chat to a young player uh this week and I asked him to watch a player and he rang me back an hour later and said, look, I'm ready to talk about it. And I said, well, you couldn't have watched that play. Yeah, and I think it's, it's one of the things that's an important skill for the coaches now is to teach the players to actually watch the games because we're, we're coming into a YouTube generation that they just watch highlights yeah. and they don't watch the nuances of the game, particularly, you know, you're teaching those players who are going to be your most important players, who are decision-making players their ability to understand the nuances of the game because, you know, you watch a game. I've just re-watched our Six Nations games this week and in every game I've picked up three or four new things that I didn't see before that could potentially be really important in going forward. And, again, for a coach, your ability to watch games and pick up things quickly is important. And, and every time as a coach you watch a game of rugby, you should be putting yourself in the shoe of one coach. So you're either the, the Harlequins coach or the Stade Francais coach, the Welsh coach or the English coach. And every time you're watching that game, you're thinking right after 20 minutes, what would I be doing now? What would I say to the team? Half time, what would I say? And it's the best way to learn about coaching because those decisions you make during the game, you need to be quick and you need to be urgent. And I mean, you talk about the YouTube generation. I'm sitting at home. I'm watching reruns of British Opens from 1986. I'm watching old Wimbledon in this particular time. But you learn, I sat down, do you know uh, Ian McKinley, the the fly half, um, who, you know, blind in in one eye, (laughs) horrific accent, incredible story to come back. But I remember sitting down with him and he started talking to me. He is going to be a brilliant coach at some stage. But he started talking about, all sorts of different sports and how momentum <coughs> matches and how he watches tennis and how he watches Federer play and how the game goes in tennis, the same in golf. And you just he's picking up on those momentum issues and how you can rest momentum to and fro. How, uh, how do you work on that momentum within a match? Uh, the, the, the swings, the mental swings, what sort of practices do you put in place for that? Uh, well, I think it's one of the hardest things to coach. I've used a data analytic company since 2003, and basically they've got a way of tracking momentum in a game, um, and so that's been a big emphasis. We, we try to create those situations for training. So, for instance, again, we'll, put, we'll mix our teams up so we have the weakest forward pack with the strongest backline pack, and then strongest backline, sorry, and then put them in situations where they've got to try to get out of their own half. 
So the momentum's all against them because they got no they got no go forward. And then we'll change that situation and give them give them quick ball in the in the the opposition's half. So we'll try to create those momentum swings. I think one of the things that players aren't good at now, and I, again, I think it's a lot of it's because of the way they're educated. They're not good at picking up the momentum in the game. They can't feel it in the game. They just tend to play the game. And I think if you can create training situations where you create that awareness, you've got it with you now, you're getting quick ball, you know, you're knocking them out of the game line. What are you going to do now to maintain that and, 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 and allow them to have short periods of time on the field to discuss that and then come up with a plan of either how to regain it or how to retain it, I think is really useful. So I don't have any real golden answer there. No, well, I don't think there is, apart from understanding and being in the moment loads of times in there because you yeah. see so many, I think I'm a brilliant, you know, three and a half years at Italy, but when you're not used to winning matches, one of the issues you have is when the momentum goes against you, you start chasing. And it's a bit like the same in golf. You can't start going for the pins. You can't start going for your big shots. You have to work your way back into something because you're not suddenly going to score from 90 metres if it's not been done the whole game. But it's the mental side. You feel, I have to do something different. Well, sometimes you you don't. Just thinking back then, just on on that momentum, and it's an interesting one for, again, you go back down the start of your coaching years. Uh, a lot. I see a lot of people just replicating intensity in training sessions um, without looking and focusing on the technique. So how do you think balance changes as you're developing as a coach and the, uh, the skill set mightn't be as good at a certain level? And then as you go up, your balance in training might change. What, what do you think coaches should be focusing on in their training sessions? Well, I think you've always got to build a team up. Um, and the building of the team, there's, I just read a great story uh, just recently about Vince Lombardi, you know, the great Green Bay Packers head coach. At his first lecture of every year, he'd pick up the football and he'd say, this is a football. And then he'd give a, a eulogy on, on why the football is so important. I think that you've always got to go back to the basics all the time. So whatever team you're coaching, you go back to the basics, you start at the basics, then you build up. And you build up intensity at training gradually. You've got to build that up. And and you can only build the intensity when they're capable of building the intensity. But what you have to build continually is their basics. Is they, They've got great core skills. They've got great work off the ball. They've got great... Uh, scramble defence, you've got to be working on those sort of things and then that allows you to build intensity in your training and I think it's a really good point that you made, everyone thinks you've got to have intensity in training and you do but you've got to build that up gradually I had a phone call a year ago a year ago or so from a friend of mine in, in Ireland and he's coaching his son's under 12s Gaelic football team and he said I want to do something different at training this year and I said oh he said like what what should I do and I said think tell you what for one year coach them to kick off their wrong foot they're not allowed to kick with their good foot for the whole year and he went can't do that because we'll lose and I said yeah but you'll give them a skill for life they're two-footed for the rest of their lives how good is that going to be and he went, no, no, I can't do that. So how 
how far out like would you go in terms of skill development as a you know pushing versus your strength versus your weakness as a coach again depends on how result orientated your competition is and what level you're coaching at but i think you know and we've seen it at, at the younger age group there's too much focus on results and you should be focusing on core skill development and you know something like that and and even I did it with Japan when I first started. Like I had to change the whole mindset of the team because they wanted to play orthodox rugby, and we couldn't beat time with a big stick playing orthodox rugby because we had the smallest players in the world. So we played a te- the first couple of test matches without kicking the ball, and it was bloody hard on the players. They didn't enjoy it, but. If you're going to change the mindset of, of players or change the skill of the players, you've got to almost exaggerate the problem. So mm-hmm. like you're saying there, to do that with a young group when they think they're, they're developing and to put them back into a, uh, an exploration mode, I think is a great exercise, very good exercise. You know, there used to be that story about George Best. You know, he, he would only train with his left boot on or his right boot, whichever it was, so his uh, less favoured foot. So he'd have to have to improve that foot. And I think we've got to encourage it because I think the risk we have in rugby is that our most physical, able players are generally our less skilled players because at a, at a junior age group, they're just allowed to play to their strengths. Whereas those big kids at, at junior age groups generally aren't that big when they get older. And then they don't have the skill set to be able to develop their game, and you've got to teach them that as a young age. I I get called by parents from time to time, and there was this uh, parent got in touch with me and said his son doesn't get picked. He's small. He's getting a bit down because he's not getting picked, but he's actually very skillful. I've seen him, and I said to him, I said, "Let me talk to your son because he'll actually, as you grow up." And as everyone matures, it'll all level out. And what he's learning now, being a little bit smaller than all the others, is skill is king. He will have to yeah. develop evasive skills. He'll have to develop his handling skills because it's the only way he can survive at this age. But as you grow up, that'll even out and he'll be the one with the skill. It's so right. It is so right that we we focus sometimes on the here and now too much. Um, just going back a little bit and going into your coaching and what either in your mind, either delivered or listened to, that would be the most inspirational kind of talk, either pre-match or half-time in your career? Well, in all the games I played, maybe 300 games around week, uh, I can only ever remember one half-time speech. And it was, uh, we won the league by 12 points, but there was still playoffs. And we had like 10 Wallabies in the side, so the best team. But our coach was Bob Dwyer. Swapped out 10 and 15 around. Anyway, at halftime, we're down 30 nil in the final. And he knew he'd made a mistake. And he was just, at halftime, he was bawling his eyes out saying we could still win. I still remember it. I can remember it clear as a day now. And it was emotive. It was, it was, he was almost playing with the fact that he made a mistake. And now you've got to try to fix it. We didn't fix it, but we played better in the second half. But I think, the speeches you remember are always the speeches that have an emotional attachment that, that rises something in you. And it's the same thing, you know, any coach, if they want to make a mark on their players, they have to have an emotional tie in with that group 
Now, it can be aggressive, which probably works once every two years now. But generally, they've got to find a way to, to, to get some connectedness with their, with their players. Um, yeah, I've heard some really good pre-game speeches. Again, we had another simple one down at Randwick. I remember the coach just said, and it still is in my head, where would you rather be today? You know, the sun's shining, you're at Kudji Oval. I open up the book of the, the game, the first page we bash them, second page we bash them, third page we bash them, last page we bash them. And so there was no tactics, nothing in it, but it created a picture in your head. And, and as you know, that's 30 years ago. I can still remember it as clear as day. And that's, that's, that's why... As a coach, you've got to be able to, to to make an attachment to your players. Now, you don't need to do that all the time because sometimes you just need to be matter of fact. But when you do need to, to make those speeches, you need to plan them well. I've always felt be yourself um, because I think if, if you're emotive or if you keep things... Players see right through you very quickly if you're trying to force something out of yourself as opposed to this is genuinely how this person feels at the moment. You, you've been on the other end. I always try and put myself, okay, I'm sitting down as a player listening to me. Yeah. What, does that, what does that sound like? And if it yeah. sounds false, I don't want to do that. It's all trying yeah. to try to put yourself in that. Uh, I'm going to ask a few questions that have come in from uh, people, and maybe there might be more. Yeah. In other words, rather than you listen to the rubbish that I'm, I'm not very good at interviewing, am I? But <laughs> one other question. One other question for you. You mentioned Bob Dwyer, who I thought was, you know, growing up, and I remember going over to Australia '94 playing. Uh, I just thought he was incredible. But he, uh, we played. Uh, ACT in a warm-up game. I'm oh, sorry, there was a warm-up game going on. You might know this story. Uh, we arrived along, Ireland arrived along to the match and uh, it was the, the pitch where they had the cricket strip in the middle of the pitch. It was yeah, a really yeah. hard pitch in the middle. And there was a warm-up game going on with the ACT under-19s. And this young kid, we all were watching the match and uh, before we went into the changing rooms. And this kid was ripping up the pitch. I mean, we were going, thank God he's not playing against us yeah. today. <laughs> One of those ones. And it was Joe Roth. Yeah, yeah. And a week later, Bob had picked him into the Australia A-side straight away. Like He just saw this 17-year-old went, done. You do that. You, you pick players. Is that something you picked from Bob or is it something that's inherent in you? Is it something that you kind of saw, well, Bob Dwyer always picked, he picked Tim Horn, he picked uh, Jason Littlejung, he, he yeah. picked and identified. Is that something you have kind of inbred in you now? Or where do you think? I always, yeah, no, I always remember he said to me, when you're selecting, players always select themselves. And he said, always look for players who can be better than the players you've got. They don't have to be better now, but if you think they can be better than the players you've got now, pick them now. And I think it's a, it's a great selection point. And, and he also, the other point about that, he said never go to, to a game and sit with other coaches. Sit by yourself because if you sit with other coaches, you'll be influenced by what they think and you'll miss things. And I've, those two things have stayed with me for, for, for all the time and, and, and it's really helped me. Like I remember seeing Tom Curry for 20 minutes. I thought this kid's going to make it. 
So we've got to pick him. I think we took him as eighteen-year-old Argentina, mm. and 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 sometimes you've got to be a bit patient with those kids because they'll have some ups and downs. But uh, if they've got that something about them, pick them because you know. You and the other thing you used to say is, is pick the kids with the things you can't coach. Like you know, you're saying Joe Roth, all those things you saw, they're hard to coach. Yeah, it's easy to coach attitude. It's easy to coach hard work. It's easy to coach work ethic, but the the X factor things are the things you can't coach. Well, we had, and I'll go on to these questions. We had to say Warren Gatland in ninety eight, ninety nine brought along Brian O'Driscoll to a session, and Gordon Darcy, two young players. Gordon was in school. Um, Brian was a year out of school. Brought them along, said to a few of the senior players, "Take a look at them, see what you think." And we just went after the session. Well, Gordon Darcy was going for fullback, so I said he was pretty terrible. <laughs> so I said, don't to him. He, was, he wasn't worth it. But we just looked and went, wow. Because you saw in Drico straight away something that just nobody else ever had. Um, and you see it. And they're very rare, but you yeah. can you just have to trust it. Yeah. Okay, rather than my waffling around, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here. Uh, some we've kind of covered. So, Jamie, um, just some questions from the community coaches. Uh, leading into a big game, how do you structure your briefing and what tone and key messages would you use? Uh, well, Jamie, for a big game, the bigger the game, the less you have to do because the motivation's always high. So you, 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 your points have got to be very simple and direct. Uh, maybe one tactical point, maybe one emotional point. So... Uh, keep them very, very brief, very short. The, when you're playing against teams you're expected to win, then you've got to work harder at at, uh, at making sure your pre-game is, has got them in the right spot. And in the, the whole week, it's got them in the right spot. So if you're playing a side you're expected to win, your first training session of the week is so important. You've got to set the scene. You've got to put some harder work in than you normally do to make them understand this is not going to be an easy game. We've got to work hard to win this game. And when it's a big opponent, uh, when motivation's high, like you're playing against New Zealand, then the coach has got to has got to has got to do less because they're going to be motivated. Great stuff. Okay, um, JK Rugby sounds like a pseudonym, but anyway, JK Rugby is asking, how do you and other coaches pick up players after a disappointing result? Uh Talk to us after well, the French think, game. Talk, talk to us after the yeah. French game. So the the the, the down after that. Well, how, how, yes. how did you go about the next week? So the the Sunday we put up a slide. Uh, entries in the twenty two England twenty four, France fifteen, um, and that was basically the review of the game. Right. So we did this, guys, uh, but we didn't win the game. So we did a lot of good things. Um, so how are we going to turn that around? And in those situations, particularly when it's like that, always give the players more responsibility coming up with the answers. Um, so give them the direction, give them some positive direction, and then allow the players to work out the problem themselves. If you've got a younger team, then you have to, you might need to be more directive. But try to pick out the things you've done well and then build from that. Okay, before I go on, just to follow on from this, is a personal, a personal learn for me. When you're in that room and you're giving the players the responsibility and like with all players, you see them dreaming up things that aren't the reality, how do you cut that off without feeling like you're leading it? Do you understand that that question? Is that you know they're going down a path that's almost dreaming up a 
something that's wrong that isn't but you're trying to allow them work their way through it where, where do you draw the line where do you stop them from going down that route well when i was younger yeah. i used to be quite quite direct um but now i've become a bit more, younger more subtle <laughs> so <laughs> gen- generally say to them now well that's that's a good point but maybe that's something we need to do a little bit further on we need to deal with this more directly now um so not not uh castigate the idea but tell them it's a good idea and and maybe we can look at that a little bit later because you will always get that yeah absolutely 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 it's it's the balance the whole time of uh yeah everyone's looking for answers and sometimes they 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 dream them up so two more Ed asked, how do you judge the readiness of individuals to take on board feedback? Uh, if their eyes roll or not. And when you see uh, they're rolling, what do you do? <laughs> uh, just, again, when I, was, when I was a young coach, I used to go at them harder, and now I'll pull right back. Brilliant. Okay, last question. And uh, this, this has been brilliant. I really enjoyed it, actually. <laughs> Talking rugby. That's good. Um <laughs> Jay Manison asks, and there are probably a lot more questions in future little podcasts and chats we do from people rather than me, so you'll be happy. Um, how do you structure your chats or your um, your talks? And do you devolve it to leadership groups or do you talk to the whole group or do you split things up? How do you how do you deliver your talks? Yeah, no, at the start, generally the start of the week, we'll have the leadership group in, uh, which will be four or five top players. We'll put a framework of the of how we want to approach the week. Uh, give them some time to to think whether that's good or not. Uh, then come back, have a discussion, and then basically from there, we'll we'll want the players to lead that discussion. Now we'll have coaches who guide them, but they'll they'll basically lead that discussion. But we'll set the framework. So I think the important thing is for coaches that they set the framework. So this is how we're going to play. And then the detail of, of how we're going to do that, if the players have the experience and the expertise, allow them to develop that. If they don't, then you've got to do a little bit more yourself as a coach. And then, like Colombo, one last thing. One last thing. Do you always deliver half-time or who decides who gives the key message at half-time to, uh, to the team? Like you have Mitch, you have Simon Amor, you have Matt Proudfoot. Does everyone talk? How, how, how do you do that? No, no, we're very strict on that because, uh, again, the players, you know, just my example, I remember one one half-time speech in all the games I played. Um, we'll have a situation where as soon as we come in the dressing room, the senior players will come in with me. I'll get their feedback, get an idea of what they're thinking. Uh, the assistant coaches will go to the units a maximum of three points for the forwards, maximum of three points for the backs, and then I'll get them all in together and, and just summarise that. Just go back to what the senior players said um, and if there's any other nuance that I have. So we try to really streamline the information. Um, but I think as a head coach, it's really important at half time that you lead in, in some capacity. Uh, it was interesting, two years ago against Samoa, we were playing terrible. Um, you know, look, we're just going through the motions. And I changed the whole routine. I said, right, guys, come in. I said, I said to them, we're not playing so well, are we? So you guys have got to fix it. So when we come back together, so we gave them three or four minutes, come back together, tell me how we're going to fix it. And the players were outstanding. Came back three points, 
and the second half we played beautifully. And I think that's again when when the, every, every team tries hard. I you know I've coached for twenty odd years, and I think I've coached. I can't remember a team I've coached that hasn't tried. So it's never lack of effort. So you always got to find a way. If they're a bit down, give them something to build on. If they're too up, then you got to pull them down. So you got to find the right mixture at halftime to give them. And and sometimes you do have to spray them, um, but it doesn't happen too often now. Well, it did in the past. Uh, uh, in the past, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Eddie, I've really enjoyed that. Um, thank you very much for the time. And when we talk next, we'll have hopefully a good few questions coming in and maybe a bit of a reminisce about some old times and, and old moments. But thank you very much for your time. That's been brilliant. All right. Good on you, Connor. Thanks, Thanks Eddie. Cheers. And that's it this week of the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. Thanks for joining. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you can get our new releases, which will be on Tuesday of every week. And we really appreciate any comments and ratings from you to help the podcast grow. Thanks for listening.